Welcome to another episode of On Production, where we dive into the captivating stories and insights from professionals in the world of production. Today, we're fortunate to be joined by Paul Schumann, currently serving as the Senior Director of Labor Relations here at Ratbook. With a career spanning several decades, Paul has been deeply involved in labor relations and contract administration within the entertainment industry. From his days as Director of Video Operations at Spelling Entertainment, to his stints as the Vice President of Contract Administration at AMPTP, and the Director of Media and Labor Economics at SAG-AFRA, Paul has amassed an array of experiences and a wealth of knowledge in the field. Paul, thanks so much for being here. It's a pleasure, and thank you for having me. Let's jump in for our uh, listeners. Could you tell us about your early career and how you ventured into this incredible field of labor relations? Absolutely. I'll go a little bit further back than my start, just uh, as interesting as it might be for some people, that during World War II, my father was born and was raised in South Africa and was on a farm and was near a POW camp where a lot of Italians were sent during the war. They weren't deliberately starved, but food was a bit scarce. It was the war, and he would smuggle extra food through the wire, and the guards would usually turn a blind eye to these prisoners. And uh, this war, like all wars, came to an end. And a few years later, about 1948, he was on the street, I believe it was Johannesburg, and he was flagged over by the driver of a limousine, which these days would be creepy, but it was pretty normal back, or not normal, but more acceptable back then. And uh, the person in the back was an Italian prisoner of war. And he said to my dad, you know, you saved my life. You brought me food. I, I owe you everything. I'm so happy I ran into you again. Is there anything I can do? And he's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm actually looking for a job. And this Italian fellow said, you know, well, I'm getting into this new thing. It's just beginning to take off. It's called television. Would you like a job? My father went through and became a camera person, ended up as an editor, won an Emmy and some other awards. Uh, well, there's a lot of globe trotting. He met my mom was in the industry. She was a script supervisor. And in between point A and point B, I came along. And very early on, as this was the 1960s, you could take your baby to the set sometimes if you had the right job. I was going to the set with my mom. And the director spotted me and said, your baby's cute. We would love to have him in a baby food commercial. At least so I'm told. I actually don't remember this. And uh, I ended up in a baby food commercial. And so I literally started my industry career before I was one year old, and I've been in it ever since. So throughout the years after that, I worked as an actor, as a performer in various things, in various roles in films. I did voiceover, animated voiceover, commercial work. I did commercial work for Japan and Spain extensively and decided to take a small bit of a break while I was through college. I still ended up doing work as props and costuming while I was in college because it paid better than any other job. And afterwards went to spelling and worked at spelling entertainment slash spelling television during the years where we launched such shows as 90210, Melrose Place, Seventh Heaven, Charmed, and so on. And it was while I was there in the 90s that I started to develop this fascination with the labor world, the unions, and all these people we were dealing with because I've been familiar with SAG being a former but these other groups were, were getting really interesting to me. And for whatever reason, uh, it's something that I had a knack for. And so I eventually ended up through one or two steps of getting into a payroll company. And I very quickly moved up through the ranks and ended up an EVP at that particular payroll company. 
And after about eight years, I was headhunted away to the MPTP, where I did a stint there a little over a year and was there during the 0708 Writers Guild strike. So I saw quite a few turbulent times and then went back into the payroll game for another stint. That was seven or eight years. Then I went to SAG after five years. And there I was in the economics, what we call the MLE, the Media Labor Economics Division, where I would do things such as help with bargaining, bargaining research, uh, wage tables, just all across the, the realm of contracts. And then after that, I ended up joining Rapbook after five years at SAG. And I'm very happy to say that I'm still with Rapbook a few years later. So that's kind of how that's my little backstory in less than five minutes, I think. I love it, Paul. You know, it's it's a pleasure to work with you. But, you know, one of the reasons why I really wanted to get you on the show is just because the wealth and the breadth and the depth of your experience and even more so is is just the complexity and the importance um, of folks like you in kind of keeping the administration of these contracts kind of working for everybody. I, I am curious, you know, um, you know, as you moved through different roles in the industry, how did your understanding of labor relations evolve? And, you know, you've had everything from on-set jobs, being in the union yourself, to like working at AMPTP and across these different roles and at different payroll companies. You know, I'm curious, like, what commonalities you've seen amongst all of these different positions? And, like, if you could just help us kind of get a better understanding of of labor relations ac across the board from your experience. Well, so there's many things about the experience which I can't talk about for various reasons, but I will say that one of the common threads which I always smile about is that both sides look at the other side and think that there are master plans and that everything is smooth, and I think both sides are just as confused as the other side is. And we, both sides have the same problems frequently, but they are different. The benefit that I had is having worked on a set and having worked in production and having worked on exactly the opposite side gave me an interesting place to bridge when working on either side because when I was starting to work with the union folks from the management side, I was able to garner a lot more traction with them in any discussion because I had actually done some of these jobs where many of the labor people had not. And then it ended up being the opposite. When I would go to the other side, I had so many years in exec or such, I, I was able to translate that. So it gave me a very interesting perspective. And also for the payroll time, it wasn't just looking at a physical contract and it wasn't just looking at it from the union or the management side. The payroll company forced me to study the practical application of those agreements, which in its own way becomes the nightmare. Because it's one thing to sit on either side of the table and say, we want a better this or that in our contract, and the other side to say yes or no. But frequently, both sides don't ponder how difficult it will be to administer these changes or track these changes. And so it's, it's given me a very interesting perspective, which I think has allowed me to help solve some of these problems for us on an administrative level. That's super interesting, and I think it leads nicely into kind of something else that I was hoping you could provide some insight on, which is, can you give a, maybe an overview of labor relations within the production industry and, and why it's important? The term or the words labor relations are thrown around frequently, but very few people actually know what they mean. And I would sum that up as I went to a safety meeting at a Los Angeles local some years ago, incognito. I was just dressed down and I was there for safety reasons, just to, as an attendee. 
And there was a discussion that came up about labor people and the voices in the audience were very interesting and it got me a lot of insight that many of the rank and file members of the union, it was just a term that they had as a synonymous thing for the bad guys on the other side that they really didn't know. So I'm very happy to actually explain a little bit of what we do. On To start somewhat backwards, the unions, the IOTSE, the Teamsters, SAG, and so on, they have representatives inside those unions that are specialists that know their agreements, know the terms, and that you know a producer can call up and say, why do I have to pay this and do that? On the management side, there are labor relations people. And who has those? The studios, specifically the majors. So uh, if you go to a company such as Paramount or Universal, they'll have labor relations groups. The payroll companies, the ones that are of any size, have their own labor relations group. And the reason for this is people will debate this. So there's no, never going to be a right answer on this one. So everybody can hate me on this. There's approximately 80 odd agreements that we deal with. And some people will say that's too many or too few. Okay, that's the number I have. They vary in complexity to all sorts of degrees. Some are 30 pages long and they just tell people you get a certain amount of overtime and there's some pension and health that gets paid here. Uh, my visual aid I always use. This is one of the SAG books. This is the main book. It's about 850 pages and growing every three years. The labor relations people essentially are tasked with having familiarity, if not extreme familiarity, with all of those agreements. And that is very important and that when a production for a payroll company, such as Wrapbook, when clients come in and they say, why do I have to pay it this way? Are they entitled to that? What type of scale is it? All of that, almost always a production needs the answer. They need it quickly and they need it definitively. And if you get it wrong, it blows the budget. So the role becomes very important when you're paying attention to all those details. And one of the things is the studios, such as a major studio, a production for that major studio can lean on that labor department. But so many of these productions, that that's a luxury of it, which is one of the reasons the payroll companies maintain groups and people such as myself and my coworkers in the labor division, is you can lean on us for that support whenever is needed. And so in the case of a payroll company, one of the terms we've always used at the companies I was at prior is we view ourselves somewhat as Switzerland. We're not supposed to be on the union or the management side of the payroll company. We're just there to tell you what it says. Whether or not the client wishes to do whatever they wish to do is ultimately the client's decision, and they're usually the signatory. We can advise against it, or we can tell you that there have been issues or problems with it. You shouldn't do this. But that is the type of advice that we can bring. And so if someone would say, I want to take a truck full of camera equipment from Los Angeles, and I'm going to take it to Louisiana, and no one's going to tell me otherwise, I can walk through you all the problems you will hit, why you really don't probably want to do that if you're a shoot of a certain size, the history behind where all those arbitrations were lost, and I can explain to you in depth where all that came from. And beyond that, Steve is on the staff. Steve has been with the Teamsters for many decades. He can give you even more detail. But it's not just so that you know, gosh, that's a mistake. Gosh, it might cost you money. But most producers want to know exactly why. They don't want to be just be told they have to pay money, and that's also part of what we do. So that's a slightly longer-winded explanation than I meant to give, but that's an explanation. Paul, that's super interesting. And, you know, 
it sounds as if the labor relations name is just as helpful for the production company or the workers as well, because, you know, you're making sure workers are getting paid accordingly to their contracts and enabling production people and production managers to, to kind of be able to budget correctly and navigate the contracts appropriately and hopefully just reduce the friction in the process. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say one of the things for the union side is most of the union reps are familiar with the labor relations team. And so if there is a problem or more importantly, a perceived problem on a project, the union knows or unions, whichever one, will know to reach out to the labor group rather than just randomly calling up the payroll company. They will reach out to the labor group and they'll describe the problem. And then it's tasked to us to go and investigate to see, is it a legitimate concern? If it's not, and then to explain back, if it is a real issue, then to advise the client and so on and so forth and become almost a, to the extent possible, a mediator between the two groups. If it comes down to that, usually we can resolve things rather peaceably. Usually it's just an honest to God human error. It's not deceit. So, and that's something that can always be fixed. You know, Paul, I'm curious for our listeners, you know, and I guess I asked this question because I think for folks to get an insight into the challenges that you and your team face within like the process of enabling labor relations between these different parties, maybe your answer can help, you know, facilitate a way for people when they're engaging with the labor union to have a smooth experience. But what are some of the biggest challenges that you've faced in labor relations within the production industry over your long career? That's a good one. They vary in degree. One of the things with labor is we work very heavily with accountants, and we will get asked well in advance of a production to assist an accountant, which on the surface doesn't sound like much. But I've had many accounts say that I'm doing a budget for a film. It might be $150 million. It's filming in this time range in this location. And to gather all that information and make sure it's accurate and will be appropriate to the time, the location, is extremely challenging. But some of the bigger ones I've had that have come along without using production or producer names, major films going into large cities with massive street closures. A good one was we had one that was filming in a major city on the East Coast in federal buildings. And those buildings were only closed, I believe it was Sundays and Wednesdays. And we had to work very heavily with the union to come up with a schedule where the producer didn't have to pay endless amounts of crew for all these unused days. Thankfully, we were able to come to an agreement. There are many other circumstances that have come along and they arranged the whole gambit. One of my favorites is I get a lot of questions, depending on the season, with force majeure. We had a film crew where the director said the weather forecast is bupkis. It's got to be wrong. It's Atlanta, Georgia. Everybody come in. We'll wrap at 5 o'clock because the weather is not going to happen. They got snowed in for two days, and they had to live in the soundstage for two days. Contracts don't say a lot about when that happens, and it's getting in there and figuring it out and trying to mitigate those issues. And that's just a few of them. I'm just, I know there's better ones, but that's just what's sleeping the mind. It's super interesting. And you could imagine like with something that is as variable and ever-changing as production that these things come up all the time, whether they're small or enormous, like the contract could not possibly stipulate everything that can and will happen on a set. So it makes a lot of sense. You know, it's a really good pivot, Paul, because, you know, we've been chatting about labor relations and how it relates to production and how labor relations is a useful kind of division in a payroll company to provide guidance to production companies to pay workers appropriately, but pivoting slightly 
from labor relations into contract administration, which you have experience on as well, you know, how does contract administration play into the larger picture of production as an industry? It's tricky in that the there are so many contracts and sub-variants and uh, not picking on a particular group because there's a few unions that have low-budget agreements. And they will say that there's several tiers, three tiers. But you open the agreement and you start reading it and you realize there's actually four, five, six different tiers because there might be a two, but there might be a two A, B, and C. And then that gets confusing. Another point with administration is one of the things I dealt with at SAG, uh, not directly, but I, I was assisting them, was the residuals department. And so many residuals are paid based off of the scale rate that was in time in, in effect at the time of the recording. So if you're paying TV episodic that was done in 1975, you need to know the pension and health rate from that year. You need to know what the scale rate was from that year. Then there's other aspects. And this stuff becomes very voluminous very quickly. Some of the, you know, you figure out that these agreements are generally negotiated or renegotiated every three years. And some of these contracts are back to the 20s and the 30s. That's a lot of contracts. And a lot of them look bad. For example, a lot of SAG projects for what is now new media might make a reference to a residual formula that's older. For example, one of the older residual formulas is the, what we call the basic cable residual formula. If you pull out the SAG TV book, it says there is a thing and it's this basic cable. That's just wonderful, but it doesn't really give you the details. And it's all based off of this whole thing that was a deal struck between a studio and a union. And it was called Sanchez of Bel Air because that was the name of the show. And so... It's a deal that you have to be familiar with and you have to have the details on in order to process the residuals, but it's not published anywhere and it's not in the agreement. So unless you are very careful with your administration, you're not going to be able to find these type of things. And then people get upset because they're not getting paid. That is one example, I'm sure, of many. I mean, to that point, can you talk about some of the key aspects and then challenges of contract administration in the entertainment industry? I mean, like you've kind of touched on it a little bit, but I'm curious how professionals such as yourself uh, on both the union side or the payroll side kind of like navigate uh, this sort of complexity to find solutions for all of the participants in the industry? It's kind of like herding cats. Kind of like herding cats. One of the big administrative challenges is something that on the surface is very simple, which is let's suppose you go to SAG and you sign with SAG because you're going to make a project that's new media. Well, on the surface, that's fairly simple. However, then come the questions. Is it prime time? Is it non-prime time? Is it dramatic? Is it non-dramatic? And there are variations between all of that. So some um, almost all of the contracts we deal with at some point for episodic projects cover those. They have language. And that in itself is a good example of we have to be careful how you're administrating because... If under, for example, if I'm making a TV show and I'm, I'm just very vanilla, a TV show in Los Angeles and I have an IA crew, well, their agreement has language that says it's a TV show and it's either is it a half hour, one hour, hour and a half, two hour. Well, suppose it's a half hour. Well, the first year, the crew, if it meets the requirements, they would not receive the vacation and holiday pay that they normally would get. However, 
it will start to kick in incrementally as the show progresses. So by the time you move into it and further and further, that does become an effective term. So by the time you're in year five of the contract, you're getting full vacation or even year three, you're getting full vacation and holiday by that point. And it's incremental. So even inside that clause, there are sections that change over the course of the production and the production's lifespan. And you have to be very on the ball and paying attention to that because there are no automatic flags that pop up. And if you miss it, you're going to have a very angry crew because they're not getting the money and then they have to do a retro, which is messy and expensive. So it's just paying a lot of attention to details. I have mountains of spreadsheets and charts that track dates, effective expires. It's the only way you can do it sometimes is just have large lists of things. So, and unfortunately, it's not a particularly exciting answer, but that's the reality of it. You know, it's a slight pivot off of this, but like you talk about the details, you see the impact of these contracts and these these payments on the entirety of the industry. You know, something in your career experience was actually serving as like an economist or really dig into the implications of transactions in entertainment. Can you speak to kind of your experience of doing that role and what you learned and how uniquely see entertainment fitting into the, like the larger macro picture of the U.S. and even potentially global economy? I can. I can. I cannot tell you the exact numbers and I cannot tell you who I did it for. Sure. But with that said, just as a general, I find it fascinating because, for example, a lot of people have asked me about what type of impact does the WGA strike have right now? Well, usually that question is not, well, what does it mean to Jane and Joe true person or whatever. I mean, we all know there's a slowdown of work and so on. But the question is, well, what does that really do to the economy? And it's always fascinated me. I love working on these problems because there are so many moving parts. So in that case, it's not just Joe, the lighting technician, is not getting paid because there's no work this week because there's a strike going. Well, that means Joe may not take his family out to dinner at Denny's. He may not go to the dry cleaner. He's probably going to push off getting those tires replaced on his car. And so it starts to trickle down, and then it hits your state and it hits your federal. And it, it is a very – there's so many moving components that t t I, it took me many, many, many days of staring at these numbers to try to even begin to figure out how to actually articulate them in the numbers. But somehow, eventually, we do come up with numbers that are representative of the gross payroll volume of the industry in a given year, how many workers are in entertainment. Um, admittedly, yeah, there's a good portion of it that's black magic, but some of it we can drill down and get extremely specific on. It is it's part of the variables. Usually, everybody wants the data yesterday, and to do it any sort of justice, it takes a lot of time. So the compromise is a little bit of black magic and a little bit of actual work. Sorry for the va the somewhat vagary in the answer, but I have to fulfill certain legal obligations not to discuss things with certain groups. It makes a lot of sense. You know, pivoting a little bit, Paul, you know, could you share some of your experiences working with SAG-AFTRA and, and how it has influenced your career? Yeah, actually, I, I was a very interesting because I'd worked as an actor I had negotiated across the table from SAG, and then I was flipped, and I had to negotiate with SAG against the same people I used to negotiate for. 
So that was a phenomenal experience for me. I think my per my, my what I learned personally was the functioning of the union, the history of the union, the insights of the different unions, the relationships they have with each other, which was fascinating. And for me, I always find the human story and the human aspect the most interesting was in negotiations and negotiations of contracts last a very long time and they're really not very fun. But during a lot of the downtime that occurs in those, I had the opportunity to work with and get to know, become friends with many of the performers who were on the SAG committee. And it was just tremendous to have a chance to sit and talk with some of them, how they got their start in the industry, why they stayed in the industry, why they were part of the negotiation committee. Um, and they would range from, I'm tired of this. This is something we have to fix in the contract through someone else. I worked with very heavily. I loved with voiceover actors who said, you know, my career is great. I've got enough money. I'm here because I want to fight for the next generation so that they can have the same coverage and the same health coverage. And it was just amazing to learn all these stories. And also sometimes just to tell lots of anecdotal stories about silly things we'd seen happen on sets. But it was it was an excellent takeaway, and um, I met a lot of really, really good people there. A lot of really good people. Paul, that's fantastic. I mean, I think it's very interesting that you've had these experiences in your career of really ironing out these contracts on both sides of the table between producers and labor. You know, I'm curious, though, just broadly, how do labor organizations like SAG-AFRA and other, you know, labor unions in the production industry in your experience, kind of shape the industry? How do they affect it or engage with it? They shape it, and it's, it's, it almost sounds a little bit backwards, but it's the members that really are driving the union because it is a labor union. It's there for the members. And it creates a certain amount of chaos, but somehow it all works. And the best way I can explain it is by a simple example which is when a contract is up for negotiation, when it's coming up for negotiation, the union just doesn't go in there and uh, get there on day one and say, uh, we, want, uh, we want this, we want that, nor do the management. Both sides have a lot of meetings and discussions. On the management side, they have their concerns and they express what they want at, out of the negotiation. Maybe they're looking for a relief on some issue here or there or that a problem with this or that. With the union... The members will come together, and in the case of a group like SAG, um, they have meetings with the membership, and they say, what is it you want to see addressed in this contract? Do you want a longer lunch? Do you need better overtime? Whatever the topic may be. And a lot of the members will speak up and maybe via emails me through face-to-face -face meetings. And these are all, I'm not going to do this a lot of justice because it's a very long process, but they're all hashed through, and then it's decided this is the list of things that we should be asking for. And everybody looks at it and we it's agreed upon that this is what we'll ask for. Certain things you're always going to ask for. You're going to ask for, for raises because inflation and economy. A lot of times you'll ask for an increase to the pension and health fund, but you might have an area that has been a sore spot for a lot of the performers. And that will be where you'll try to put a lot of your bargaining clout, where you're going to try to achieve something for them. And so when you're doing that, that's very hand-to-mouth. You're thinking right now, I had a problem with this issue. I want to address this. But sometimes people are aware, sometimes they're not. You are actually still driving a very long-term cycle. 
So uh, a very good example, and I think I can say this without getting into any legal trouble, is one of the questions I get frequently was, I was there when a lot of the new media deals were done. Why do we call it new media? It's a very good question. Well, I always tell people, you're looking at it from the perspective of someone in 2023. What was, what was it when it happened? It was about 2007 we started to really do those deals. Well, what was new media? It was, what, what could you stream on in 2007? YouTube, maybe one or two others. The producers were not actively really producing. There were some little webisode type of things that were being dropped on YouTube to get eyes to go back to TV shows, little webisodes we would call them. And that was it. And what was interesting is that between that and some of the other things, we created terms and reference points for where we thought the industry was going to be because it was new. No one knew where new media was going. And it's fascinating now to look back because some of the things that we made, we, we thought were going to be this or that, both sides, I'm, I'm saying union and magic, didn't amount to anything. Other things became commonplace. I don't think it's an industry secret to say streaming has taken off. But to think of some of the terms, conditions inside the agreements that we came up with are still impacting us and will continue to impact us. A better story to finish this thought on is in the 1940s, people traveled. Most of the film production was happening in what we call the 13 Western states. Why the 13 Western? Most of those were places you could get to by train travel. Because only fools would get into airplanes because those were falling out of the sky left and right. If you don't believe me, look up how many famous people died in airplane crashes between 1945 and 1960. So SAG took it upon themselves, very rightly so, to include language about travel. And so if you pull out the SAG book, you get an older one, well, let's say six, seven years old, you'll see there's language or pre-2012 about first-class travel and first-class travel on a train and berthing on a boat if you have to go to a location on a boat. Well, at the time, that was all wonderful and pertinent and it protected actors. You turn the clock forward to about the 2000s and, well, you see a reference to first class in the book. You figure that's got to be the front of the plane, right? That's the only thing is first class. No idiot travels on a train. And we actually had to collectively both sides say, you know, what does this really mean? It's not really first class. But we inadvertently shaped a lot of the travel provisions because at the time it made sense, but no one understood where travel was going to be in another 60 years. And so they shaped a lot of provisions inadvertently. And a lot of times that's just the way things happen. You know, Paul, that's really interesting. And, you know, I'm really curious to that point, right? So like whether it was travel or new media, you mentioned this earlier as well, is that these contracts, even though they're renegotiated every three years, or thereabouts, there is some continuity that relates between these negotiations over many decades. And every new ratification of a negotiated contract has implications for what will be and what has been. And I'm really curious, like looking forward, um, because you've gone through these before, like do you see some emerging trends or changes that you've noticed over your career or things that you're kind of seeing and that like you think will have implications for where things are going? How are you reading the tea leaves? Well, that's a touchy one because almost any comment I make will upset one group or another, but I, I will venture a few opinions. Um, 
where I see the awkwardness is technology evolves. We all know this. You know, it, it, I regale young friends of mine back to the point in time when phones were those things that were on the wall in your kitchen, not the thing you carried in your pocket. But then you try to explain to people how quickly that evolved. Now, if you take that same analogy and you apply it to the film business, I remember getting my first digital camera. And then I remember that they started getting better. And then digital motion picture cameras that could take moving pictures were coming along. And the industry had to start to evolve to address the use of digital cameras in production. Because this meant a whole new world because, for example, with the camera department, there is, and there still is in the, the agreement, a loader, which was the job of a person who would, you know, and I, I don't mean to discredit them, but the, the core of it was you would load the film into the camera. You, lo you were the film loader. Well, if you used a digital camera, it's, uh, you know, the spoiler alert, no film. They didn't eliminate the position because now that that person has got a clipboard and a pen and they have to log all of that data they're recording because otherwise you have a hard drive full of gobbledygook that the editor is going to have to decipher. So you, now they're doing a job, but it's not the same job, but that job evolved. And that was a fairly painless one. But I look at a technology like volume technology, which for those who are not aware, you should look it up, is a very large LED screen, essentially, that wraps behind or around the performers that generates a very photorealistic image. And it eliminates requirements for certain amounts of set decor, depth of set, props, filming the location. It does not alleviate that. You still have to have certain props and locations and things such as that. And... Uh, that I don't see going away. However, it does mean you're probably going to use maybe a few less lights, but you're still going to have practical lighting, but you're going to have maybe less set dressing. But, okay, you know, so now those people are going to get a little anxious because you're not doing as much with that, but there's an offset. Those backgrounds just don't, you don't get them off of Google. You don't, don't Google, give me a desert background and use it you're still probably going to have a location person, an art person, I don't know what the classification is that does this actually, go out and either photograph real ones, that you can, real locations you can use on that projector, or synthesize them using the Unreal graphics engine. And that's a skill. So that's someone else who's now working. There's a person who's going to sit there with a tablet on the set and make sunrise into a sunset or to midday and change the atmosphere on that screen. That's someone else who's now doing work. All those jobs are new jobs. So you're, well, you, there's a slight, yeah, you're using a few less of these, but now you're using a few more of these. So I'm not like saying, oh no, technology's here. Everybody's going to lose their job. I'm saying there's a few people who might be doing slightly different jobs and using slightly different technology, but I don't see it eliminating things. I am going to be very carefully watching what will be happening with the use of not an artificial intelligence, but synthetic actors and voices. That is a little alarming. I'd love to guess where it's going, but I can't even guess because it's moving so quickly. But the fact that you can now drop in a synthetic actor with a synthetic voice that is almost completely unnoticeable to most people, where will it be in two years? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. You know, like with Apple releasing a really elegant like VR, AR device with the generative AI explosion 
we're just at the start and already some really incredible things are happening from, you know, like photorealistic looking avatars that are not real people, but are easily able to act or to do these different things. Like the ramifications of these technologies related to labor protections and the unions as it relates to media creation, right? Like it's like the unions are now also engaging in things beyond just the silver screen or television. It's these virtual worlds, these virtual environments. And so I'm really curious to see how some of these things kind of emerge and how collective bargaining engages with this kind of future that's unfolding. You and me both, because I know that is one of the things that is, it's in, it's as is discussed in the trade, so it's, I believe, fair game, that, yeah, artificial intelligence and synthetic use of actors is something that's being discussed at the bargaining table, I'm quite certain, at the moment. Because in reality, as of the time we're recording this, I've seen at least one show that used a digital performer that was a fully digitized creation that they slipped in, I believe, as a test because the person was not on the final cast list, wasn't in the tail credits, wasn't on IMDb. I'm 99% sure it was completely synthetic just to see if it could be done. Uh, on the other end of that spectrum, it was in the trades just a few years ago that a production entity bought all of the image and voice rights for James Dean from the family estate. And they're using him as a co-star in a period piece. So you're going to be seeing James Dean on the big screen. And they swear it's going to be undetectable that he is completely synthetic. So the next round I see, at least for actors, is going to be more and more protections for if I want to take this A-lister, this girl, this guy, what is going to be the process for, can I digitize you? Can I de-age you? What can I use you? How long can I use you? What, what is it, how does it impact residuals? Brave New World. I don't have answers to any of those. Fascinating. You know, lastly, Paul, I'm curious what advice would you give to those looking to navigate labor relations and contract administration and production? Both, I think your answer could be tailored to folks listening who are producers and follow this stuff eagerly as uh, amateurs. And maybe even for those that are thinking like, hey, you know what? I'd like to actually get into this line of work. I'm really curious how folks can kind of engage and navigate this industry that you engage with? My basic level advice is if you have a doubt on the union question, lean into your labor team. If you're with a payroll company, lean into them. If you're with a studio, you probably already know that. This is what we do for a living. We are aware of a lot of the pitfalls. We're here to give advice and to help try to prevent your budget from going. But to answer the latter of the questions, I was fortunate enough to get into the arena it has been a very challenging career to date. Very little of it has been easy. It is not a arena I would recommend for anybody who is not willing to put in some obscenely long hours. It will fry your mind more times than you think possible because of the weirdness and the complexity and the discussions. And that is just part of it. It is a field that is mostly dominated by attorneys, but not entirely. There's a few of us. I am not an attorney. I'm going to say maybe 20, 30% of the labor relations people are non-attorneys that just have a natural knack for it. Most of the rest are attorneys. But what we do is very focused on the contracts. So what you'll see with a lot of labor divisions, they're still attorneys and that's awesome. But they those the groups that have that generally still have a separate legal division. 
because what labor is doing is it's its own weird thing. We're just focusing on those contracts. So my general advice would be it's not a field I would recommend, and I certainly wouldn't recommend it to anybody who isn't very thick-skinned. I've had a lot of people ask me about getting into it over the years, and to date there's only been one or two I think would probably be well-suited for it. It's a combination of intellect and then temperament. That's great. Paul, lastly, where can our listeners find more information about you and your work, and how can they get in touch if they have any questions or need advice about labor relations for their own productions? Best place to reach me is through a rap book. As far as finding out more about me, I actually can't go into why it's not out there, but there's not a lot out there on me, and that's very deliberate. That is actually by design. If anybody does want to reach out to me, I can actually explain to them but I can't explain otherwise. Otherwise, I have to kill everybody in the audience, and that would be bad. So, uh, uh, Yes, of course. Hey, Paul, I really want to thank you for your time. Oh, it's been a uh, pleasure. Is, thank you. It is a huge privilege to work with you. Always learn a ton uh, being able to, to dig in and parse some of this complexity in the industry. But we're so thankful to have you on, on production. Happy to be here, and I can only honestly say I just love the rap book. I've worked with a lot of companies. This is probably my, my favorite so far in my entire career. So very happy to be here and it's been a pleasure talking with you. Awesome. See you next time.